some fraction of the country, the young, the curious, the rebellious, the rootless, went to San Francisco 50 years ago. Much more of the country watched it and read about it. The 1967 Summer of Love is a freeze frame, a template, sometimes even a self-parody of flower power, of love and LSD, of mind-blowing music and countercultural thinking. Its backdrop was the Vietnam War, the generation gap, and the 1967 urban riots. Its future, diluted somewhere amid political assassinations and law and order and Kent State and more Vietnam. William Schnabel was a 17-year-old high school student during the Summer of Love. He hung out in the Haight-Ashbury when he could, going to the seminal Human Bee Inn, to the happenings and the groundbreaking and earth-shaking ballroom rock concerts. Fifty years on, he's written about the time and place in the book Summer of Love and Hate, 50th Anniversary of the Summer of Love. He's a historian, now retired from a French university, and remembers and analyzes that seminal season. For a teenager like you to go down and spend your weekends there, it sounds a bit like a carnival. People, I don't know, were riding bicycles and blowing bubbles and clanging finger cymbals. What what did it look like walking down the streets there? Well, it was... To use the the idiom of the of the period, it was a mind blowing experience. It was revolutionary. It was a, a cultural revolution was going on, uh, an artistic revolution was going on, a political revolution was going on in many ways too. It it was revolutionary. It was like a carnival too. Sometimes there were parades organized by. The diggers, a lot of them came from a theatrical background. Some of them had worked with the San Francisco Mine Troupe. And a lot of them left the San Francisco Mine Troupe because they wanted to do it in the streets, not on a stage, but they wanted, you know, a street theater. There were a lot of students, there were artists. Uh, it was the, the it was called the New Bohemia. The young people were going there because you could rent a room at a very reasonable price. Young people were getting together in in living communally in these the Victorians, and so they had similar ideas. They were more liberal minded than uh, than most. Uh, a lot were smoking grass. That created a, a kind of general uh, movement that just sprouted and grew, I think. The idea of the communal living was that everybody put into the pot and everybody took it out. How did that work in practice when it came to food and sleeping and drugs? In practice, it didn't always work out so well, unfortunately. I mean, it's, it's one thing to have certain goals and ambitions and ideologies, but, you know, to put it into practice is not always successful. Some people might not pay their fair share. Some people w- w- might be more selfish than others. It's, it's very difficult to generalize about communal living. Grateful Dead, the rock band, the Grateful Dead, lived together at 710 uh, Asbury. That worked for them pretty well. It depended on the communal stew 
let me say, depends a lot on the ingredients that you put into it. Hmm. Did you spend a lot of time hanging out there in those places, besides the, the ballrooms and the music venues? Me and my friends, we, we, if we needed something, you know, if we were looking for a lid, is what we called, uh, you know, marijuana, an ounce of marijuana at the time. It was easy, you know, you just walk down uh, Hate Street and usually, you know, you walk by someone who would be, you know, advertising their wares. You know, I might crash there on a weekend with friends, you know, in a crash pad. Some of them were digger crash pads. Who were the diggers? The, the word digger comes from the 17th century English diggers that believed every Englishman should own his own land. He should own a plot of land that he could farm, that the government should be run by the people. In San Francisco's diggers, generally speaking, were opposed to authority. Everyone is equal, right? San Francisco diggers felt that everything should be free. Food should be free. In fact, they set up, you know, free food in the panhandle of Golden Gate Park. They did that for a while, uh, every day at 4 p.m. And they had a, a digger store. Everything in the store was free. <laughs> and sometimes people would go to the digger store and they'd say, well, who's in charge here? And if there was a digger around, he'd say, well, you are. Where did all that good stuff come from? If you're giving away food, you have to get it from somewhere. It might be produce that was not really fresh or that had been thrown out. Some of it was donated. They'd go to bakeries and they say, do you have any stale bread? Yeah, we got some. Well, it's over there. And they take that. Some of it was just ripped off. <laughs> Emmett Grogan was arrested a, a couple of times because, you know, if, if he saw an open door of, like, like, say, a meat truck, he'd just help himself. There you stood on the edge of so many of the kids who were there seemed to be white, middle class for the most part, educated for the most part. What was the class nature of what was going on then? You're right, Pat. The hippies, by and large, were, were, were white. There were not that many Afro-Americans or Hispanic Americans or Asian Americans. It, basically, they were white, they were middle class, they rejected materialism. You know, they came from nuclear families. They rejected the American dream. The neighborhood that is right next to the Haight-Ashbury is the Fillmore District. The Fillmore District, I don't know if it's changed today, but in, in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, it was predominantly black. And the Afro-Americans wanted part of the American dream. They wanted all these meaningless, so-called meaningless goods that the hippie culture was rejecting. So and sometimes perhaps that explains in many ways why there were few Afro-Americans in the Haight-Ashbury counterculture. That's why Jimi Hendrix is something of an anomaly in uh, psychedelic rock, because he was a black American. And there was a, a guy that sold acid. His name was Super Spade, Spade meaning black, 
But by and large, the people in Haight-Ashbury were, yes, they were white, middle class or working class. about women there? What were women doing in this period in the Haight-Ashbury? Yes, uh, in many ways, w- women seem to have a subservient role in the counterculture. But women in the, in the diggers tended to have a subservient role. By that, I mean they didn't make the major decisions because things had to be decided, right? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? How is it going to be done? And the men in the diggers tended to do that. In a lot of the communes, that seemed to be what was happening as well. Often, the women took care of the children. They did the housework. They did the cooking. You know, a traditional kind of family situation. And this is while the guys were out there preaching equality? I don't know. I don't know if they were all preaching equality. They were preaching for, you know, for rights. It's somewhat contradictory, but it, some some people have said out of the hippie movement, feminism grew as well, but I'm not so sure about that. Now, law enforcement and much of the political establishment regarded these kids and their ideas with suspicion. We've had youngsters say, well, when the question put them, why do you smoke marijuana, why are you using LSD as well? A lot of them, particularly young men, say, well, the world condition in Vietnam uh, has has upset my life. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm coming from. You've got two diametrically opposed mindsets. You have a really conservative mindset, the older generation, who fought World War II. And then you have the the younger generation that, you know, is, is smoking marijuana our parents did not, did not smoke marijuana. You know, they, they drank alcohol. They drank bourbon. They drank whiskey. They drank beer. They saw their children letting their hair grow. You have these two contradictory cultures clashing. One is opposed to the Vietnam War. Our parents were for the Vietnam War. You do what the government says, right? You don't contradict the government. So whatever... The reason that drew so many people to this moment in San Francisco, whether it was the war and the draft or drugs or spiritualism, it was all about challenging authority. That was the common thread. Not necessarily challenging, but rejecting, trying to decide for yourself. Uh, do your own thing, which was one of the, you know, the slogans of the time. You know, it also, that implies think for yourself. Don't be a robot. Don't accept what everybody tells you because it might not be true. The psychedelic counterculture, they felt that the, the American dream and imperialism and the arms race and the Cold War, that was chaos. That would lead to destruction. That, I think, you know, explains why a lot of young people rejected the ideas of their parents. There's something happening here. In all the time that you got to spend there, did you sense that Vietnam was 
a cloud that was just off the horizon if it wasn't actually hanging above everybody's heads? Sure, but young people, that was, that was the fear. Timothy Leary spoke about, you know, dropping out. Um, but dro- dropping out uh, could have its risks, too. You know, I mean, if you're in school, in, in college, you have to, to maintain a certain uh, GPA, a grade, a grade point average. Otherwise, you know, Uncle Sam would send you his, his letter of, uh, of greetings uh, you know, uh, notifying you to appear to your local draft board in the very near future. Young males that were drafted w- were sent to Vietnam where they could be killed uh, for no good reason uh, in the jungles of Vietnam. You know. What became the elements of the disintegration of that singular moment yeah. in San Francisco? Yeah. Something destroyed the hate. You know, as a history teacher, I'm interested in that because I don't think things just happen, you know, for no reason. There are causes and there are consequences. So uh, what killed the hate aspirate? Well, the media killed the, the hate aspirate by simply, it became a, a cliché. If you repeat something often enough, it tends to become automatic and people tend to forget what the, the meaning is. Too many people overwhelmed a, a small district of San Francisco. That killed the hate ashbury Before the Summer of Love, there was the human being. The, the attitude, which I think was the high watermark uh, for the Summer of Love. The human being was in January 1967 in Golden Gate Park. You had major rock bands and you had poets like Allen Ginsberg singing and chanting. <laughs> Peace in America, peace in Vietnam. People's attitudes in 66 and up to the BN people's attitudes were different. People believed in sharing. You could see that people tried to be sincere. People were, I think, more honest. After the BN, there tended to be kind of a decline. People started getting more selfish. There were people that were drawn to the hate asbury because of all the publicity, and they were drawn to it because they wanted to take something out rather than to give something. A lot of people in, in the establishment, they didn't like the hippies. Reagan had a joke about the hippies that you probably heard at one time or another. For him, a hippie dresses like Tarzan, he walks like Jane, and he smells like Cheetah. You know, we have some, we have some hippies out there in the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco. One of them the other day was giving some advice to his companions. He said, you know, your parents take care of you till you're 21, the government takes care of you after you're 65. You've only got 44 lousy years. You've got to look out for yourself. This fellow that was doing the talking had a haircut like Tarzan, he walked like Jane, and smelled like Cheetah. A moment ago I was talking about LSD. LSD, Owsley, Stanley Owsley, who, he was the clandestine the chemist. chemist who manufactured LSD. His LSD was, was pure. In other words, he wasn't, he wasn't right. mixing it up with, with, with garbage. You, you knew what you were getting. But then all of a sudden, uh, he was arrested in December of 1967. And after that, then, then you got these weird drugs. The quality of LSD got very bad after that. There were a lot of weird drugs. The hard drugs 
were dumped into the Haight-Ashbury. What has its lasting influence been, do you think? I think there are a lot. Look at the United States today. Look at marijuana. Look at the number of states that have depenalized marijuana. A lot of states authorize marijuana for medical purposes. Look how, how things have changed. In many other areas as well, ecology. People have become, today people know that you cannot pollute the planet indefinitely. Uh, look at music. Many songs from the 60s are still played today. Uh, a healthy questioning of authority. I think that a lot of that came from the counterculture. The importance of the human body. Uh, people are not afraid to show their body. Integration. Look at integration of homosexuals, minorities, perhaps to some extent the feminist movement as well. All of that stemmed from the ideas of the counterculture. Pacifism, people who are opposed to war. Uh, look at how the, the sexual mores have changed. All of those things have changed because they started in the 60s with, uh, with the counterculture. The summer of love, right? It's a buzzword. Everyone knows or thinks they know what it is. But it, in fact, it's an extremely complicated and complex a period in American history. There seems to be no question that it was a turning point in American history. It was a turning point because look what happened afterwards. You know, in 68, you have the assassination of Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, the escalation of the Vietnam War, Nhi Lai, three years after the Summer of Love, or the Weather Underground declares war against the United States of America. After the Summer of Love, there was a radicalization. And after the summer of 1967, San Francisco was being emptied of, of its counterculture. Everyone who could get out was leaving, the young people. And the people were leaving uh, the hate asper because of the police brutality, because the bad drugs, the hard drugs. There's a lot more violence. Peace and love was gone. Is there one piece of music that, for you, brings it all back, that takes you right back there? Well, one album in, uh, in particular by Jefferson Airplane, and that's uh, Surrealistic Pillow, that I think, in many ways, that captures the essence of the period. William Schnabel, you've been so generous with your time. I can't thank you enough. Certainly. My pleasure to talk to you. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited by Todd G. Levin and engineered by Levin and Tim French. The police official audio is from a Canadian broadcasting company documentary, the Human Being is from Music Vault, and the 1967 Reagan speech is via VH1. The music, White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin with Try, Buffalo Springfield, and For What It's Worth and Expecting to Fly. The Grateful Dead sang Cream Puff War. The Youngblood sang Get Together, and Scott McKenzie performed San Francisco. I am Pat Morrison. Pat Morrison.